Can One Movie Make a Difference in a Nation's Trajectory? Released in 1915, The Birth of a Nation was the first American blockbuster and was shown around the country. It was also the first movie to be screened in the White House. Mired in racist stereotypes, the movie was credited with the revitalization of the Ku Klux Klan. I'm Sushma Raman, and you're listening to Justice Matters. Joining us today is Dr. Desmond Eng, an economist and associate professor at Harvard Kennedy School, whose research lies at the intersection of race, education, and government. Dr. Eng's research on the impact of media on racial hate shows a sharp spike in lynchings and racial massacres, coinciding with the arrival of the movie in a county, with roadshow counties experiencing higher rates of hate crimes a century later. Desmond, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Shishma. Before we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what drew you to this body of uh, research and work that you've embarked upon. Uh, that's a good, complicated question. Um, so my background is um, I'm an autonomist. I received my PhD from the University of California, San Diego. Um, after that, I joined the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, all of my research kind of result, revolves around uh, race, racial discrimination, racial inequality, uh, those types of questions, looking at that through different domains, um, all of which involve um, using empirical data and econometric techniques to try to tease out, you know, whether the causes of racism, whether uh, the consequences thereof, whether the consequences of things like police violence on students' academic achievement, uh, people's voting behavior, etc. Um, a lot of questions that, again, uh, touch on race uh, in America. Um, and I think, the, you know, on, on a personal level, I think what drew me to this is that uh, I grew up in a part of uh, the U.S., a uh, part of Virginia specifically, where I was sort of the only Asian person walking around, you know, me and my family were. Uh, and so there was always this sense of feeling a little bit as an outsider. Um, and uh, I think that makes me think a lot about the role that, you know, different institutions might play, different um, media might play, different people might play in terms of making people feel more or less part of society and uh, thinking about what's the role that that plays in people's aspirations, what they decide to do, what they're interested in, uh, et cetera. Um, and so I think a lot of my work is sort of an outgrowth of that sort of like very fundamental interest uh, of just sort of like being, um, thinking about this minority experience and thinking about the ways in which, uh, you know, that can be captured in looking at really important economic outcomes like schooling, like voting, um, like people's, you know, wages and things like that. So you recently uh, wrote a paper called The Birth of a Nation, Media and Racial Hate. And the paper documented the impact of popular media on racial hate by examining the first blockbuster in the United States, The Birth of a Nation in 1915, which was a fictional portrayal of the KKK's founding which was rife with racist stereotypes. I'm wondering if you can talk about this paper as well as its findings and any recommendations you might have for us. Yeah, so The Birth of a Nation, it was um, 
you know, for those who don't know, it was this incredibly popular movie. Like Shishma said, you know, it's, it's the most, uh, it was like the first American blockbuster. People have said it sort of founded Hollywood, this idea of this big studio system making these big sort of action-packed movies. Um, and the movie was just incredibly racist. So it tells the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction following um, the protagonist of the film, uh, who, like, literally in the movie, and this is fictional, obviously, he, found, he like, founds the KKK. So the, the guy that everyone's rooting for is the person who, like, creates the KKK. Uh, and he does so the fight Northern Oppression and also, obviously, um, to villainize African Americans. And so there's scenes glorifying sort of the KKK lynching uh, somebody. There's lean, uh, scenes sort of glorifying cross-burning, etc. And it's really hard to sort of understate how popular this movie was. So um, when it came out, millions of people saw it. I think something like 15% of all adults saw the movie. If you account for inflation, it remains sort of the third highest grossing movie of all time behind Avatar and I think one of the most recent Avengers movies. And so it was just widely, widely seen, widely, widely loved across the United States. And so there have been long been narratives that this movie really might have sort of incited people to act on racial discrimination that they might have already been feeling or act on racial prejudice they might have already been feeling or actually cause them to become more racist. So what I did for this paper was really look to see, you know, what can we see in the data? Is there anything that we can find that suggests that, you know, this movie actually had some impact on people's racial preferences, uh, how much racial violence is going on in the world, etc.? And obviously the alternative explanation is just that, you know, People were really racist back in 1915. Uh, and so in this paper, what I do, again, is I try to disentangle these effects. Uh, the way I do that is by looking at where the movie was shown. And so we can figure out from the old newspapers exactly where the movie was shown, like what town it was shown and what city and theater it was shown in, and the exact date in which it showed up in those different uh, areas. And so during this time period, there wasn't sort of this very robust movie theater industry where, you know, a movie drops on, on Friday night and everyone goes to see at the AMC uh, in their county. Back then, there were really few movie theaters. And so there was this really slow rollout across the country in terms of the movie went to this town and then we went on the, on the railroad and it went to this other town so that people were really waiting to see the movie. And in some parts of the country, like they really wanted to see the movie, but they couldn't. Like they had heard about the movie, uh, but they just pr frankly couldn't see it because there's no movie theater in their town. And so with that rollout, we can really look to see, okay, what happens in the wake of that rollout? What happens in the wake of that movie coming to your town? And what, what I find is that there is this spike in lynchings um, after the movie comes to town. There's also this spike in race riots. And so the movie does really seem to incite uh, these acts of racial hate sort of immediately in its wake, right? So people want to go see the movie, they got really riled up, and then they started acting on some of these prejudices. And over the longer run, you can actually see that these areas that showed the movie are much more likely to actually have a TTT chapter. Um, this is true in the 1920s when the TTT was just really prevalent and rampant throughout the United States, in large part, certainly anecdotally uh, in histories, suggest this was entirely driven by the movie. So a lot of the th practices of the KKK, this idea that people are wearing white robes and white hoods, this idea of cross-burning, a lot of those were essentially just fictions invented by the movie uh, that have really become to take root uh, in sort of clan lore. And even today, the areas that uh, showed the movie historically are much more likely to have a clan chapter, much more likely to have some type of white supremacist hate group located in that county. They also experienced uh, higher rates of hate crimes as a result of that. This is uh, really both troubling and fascinating as we think about the 
legacy of enslavement and its aftermath on current day realities. Your paper is really fascinating. And one thing I was particularly struck by is that the movie was screened at the White House and um, it was also screened in front of many important public officials, members of Congress, members of the Supreme Court, including a chief justice. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this in terms of sort of broader publics who were influenced and the lingering effects in, in counties, as well as sort of perhaps the influence on elected officials and policymakers. Yeah, so I, you're exactly right, Shishma. The, the movie was, I mean, it, it's, it's thought of as being sort of the first movie ever shown inside the White House in the East Room. Uh, Woodrow Wilson saw it afterwards. He had this very famous quote where he said, it's like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it's all so terribly true. Obviously, the film was fiction, so a lot of it was not true. And then after that, like the following day, during the following week, uh, the film was also shown, again, to members of Congress, to, to people on the Supreme Court, including the Chief Justice there. And so it was certainly something that was very embedded in sort of the American moment at the time. And a lot of people, again, saw the movie and talked about the movie, and it, it remained a phenomenon for like decades afterwards. Um, in terms of its lingering effects on uh, racial prejudice in sort of the public arena, again, you know, there's these effects on clan chapters that these barriers that showed the movie much more likely to have clan chapters going forward in a way that seems to perpetuate racial hate and racial uh, violence specifically. We can look at things like democratic vote shares, so how much support do different counties have for the Democratic Party, which at the time was thought to be sort of like the more racially conservative party. We can look at people's uh, legislators' voting records to see whether it affects those outcomes. And you actually don't really find too much there in terms of like whether or not this translated into people voting more for Democratic candidates or elected Congress people voting more for bills or propositions that seemed more racially harmful. But again, you know, I, I think there, there's this important distinction, which is that neither party was really catering to African-Americans specifically during this time period. There was sort of a lot of racism just embedded in American society during this time period. And so whether or not this movie was causing people to be more racist on those sort of observable dimensions of political preferences, it seems like maybe it wasn't. Um, but again, it seems like there, are the, the, there was this aspect in which this movie helped to galvanize people, like sort of more racist people to get together um, to form these organizations, these hate-based organizations like the Klan, to act upon some of their instincts uh, in terms of committing acts of racial violence. So, you know, I'm wondering about the long-run effects, and as you look to the future, how do you see those developments about 100 years ago affecting the ways in which racial discrimination and hatred are manifested today? I, you know, two things I can think of is that there are many more hate groups today than just the Ku Klux Klan. And, and many of those groups might not be as well documented or structured. They may just be more informal groupings of people that come together. And if we think of the use of social media and technology platforms to influence you know, the propagation of hate-based ideologies, it's slightly different than you know, a movie that goes from county to county that influences people. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about looking to the future and the implications for the future? That's a tricky question, but obviously a very important one. I think you're totally right, Shishma, that the media landscape today is just so different from what it was back in 1915. Back then, there was like really limited exposure to the media, right? Like you really had to go 
to your local movie theater to see a movie. Nowadays, there's all sorts of different forms of media that you can access. It's all just on your cell phone screen. And so on the one hand, you know, you could think of that as just being a difference in terms of like, how do we identify these effects? It's obviously much easier to identify the effects when you have very few stimuli like the birth of a nation that come out and you can just see what happens in one area versus another. Uh, whereas today, again, people are in, so inundated with media that it becomes very hard to identify some of these marginal effects. On the other hand, you can imagine that there is also this sort of like, you become inured to these things over time, right? So like if we're seeing a lot of the movies like The Birth of a Nation over and over again, then watching it again isn't really going to matter uh, so much as watching it the first time did. And I think that there is this aspect when we think about media today, which is that people have become so accustomed, especially over, I'd say, probably the past uh, five or ten years, to like a lot of crazy things, right? Like uh, in the media, uh, just being inundated with these things. And so I think that if you were to look at any of those sort of marginal exposures, it'd be really hard to say that anything is actually going on. But the broader picture is that we are being driven down some of these different algorithmic rabbit holes. We are being inundated with a lot of media representation that lacks diversity in certain um, circumstances that has certain sort of subliminal messages, etc. Similar to sort of the birth of a nation where, you know, there was, you know, this underlying message of racism throughout the whole film. People were going to watch the movie not necessarily knowing that that was uh, what they signed up for, and yet it did have an impact. So I think there's, you know, that aspect of it, which is that there's this idea that, you know, we are influenced by media. It's just a matter of, like, how much can we say that we are? Um, how do we identify these things? Uh, I think the other aspect of this paper that I think translates to today is just the extent to which these things really endure. You know, with the birth of a nation, you can just see it on its face, what the KKK represents now, their imagery, again, with their white robes, white hoods, their cross-branding, et cetera. These are things that, again, were just, like, literally invented by the movie makers, right? So the director decided that, you know, that's what the TTT would do. And then now, again, we still see that that's like a very, very like seminal part of what the Klan does today. And so I think that there's that aspect of it, which is just on its face, you can see that these effects have endured uh, over 100 years. Uh, and the fact that, you know, nobody's watching or very few people are watching The Birth of a Nation now doesn't mean that these effects aren't enduring because what happened was that this media came out and these institutions like the TTT formed around it or as a result of it, and those institutions persist, right? And so I think that today what we're talking about with a lot of these different sources of media, these concerns about media, for example, what happened with the Capitol riots, et cetera, uh, where President Trump was talking to different groups like the Proud Boys, et cetera. Well, President Trump's not on Twitter anymore, but these groups continue to exist, right? And they might continue to exist uh, in perpetuity in ways that really will continue to shape society. So another issue that is very much in the news today is voting rights. And you've done research on voting rights as well. And I'm wondering if you can share for our audience, the work that you've done on voting rights, as well as your findings and recommendations? Sure. So obviously voting rights is an issue that continues to be in the news. Just this week, there's a lot of coverage of uh, various bills that are being debated in different states looking to enact more restrictions on who can vote, how they can vote, etc. And a lot of this recent sort of fur over different sort of voting rights restrictions stem from the fact that in 2013, the Supreme Court in this very um, well-known case, Shelby versus Holder, decided to strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act that limited different states and counties from being able to implement 
policies that might be thought of as being discriminatory, might have the effect of disenfranchising certain groups over others. So I have some work uh, looking historically to see, you know, what happened when those policies, when those, uh, when those federal protections were put into place. And so what happened in 1965 and 1975 with the Voting Rights Act was that the federal government identified areas in the United States that historically had a very troubling record with regards to race and voting, areas that historically uh, seemed to be discriminating against racial minorities in terms of voting. And they put in these restrictions called preclearance, which said that those areas going forward from 1975, from then onward, anytime those areas wanted to put in or change any aspect of their election laws, any aspect of their election processes, that's including things like, you know, where you're going to put a polling station, if you're going to get rid of polling stations, if you're going to require somebody to have identification to vote. All of those things would first have to be cleared with the federal government, which would assess whether or not, you know, these things pass the bar of not being discriminatory before those jurisdictions could put in the, into place those provisions. And so what you find looking historically, and even today, is that these measures really helped to boost voter turnout in a lot of different areas. As you might expect, a lot of this is coming through increased voting from racial minorities. And so in 2012, as a result of protections that were put into place in 1975, racial minorities are about 30% more likely to vote as a result, again, of these federal protections that prevented these counties from, from putting in policies much like the ones being debated today that might have the purpose or effect of sort of disenfranchising those groups. So Desmond, what recommendations do you have for policymakers and for advocates to strengthen voting rights? I think it's pretty clear that, and what we've seen recently, as well as historically, is that in the U.S. with our federalist system, jurisdictions, counties, states, etc., have just a ton of discretion and leverage in terms of different election processes they want to put in, right? So they can decide, hey, we're just going to cut polling stations in this part of the county versus a different part of the county in ways that have really drastic or might lead to really drastic racial disparities. The legacy of the Voting Rights Act and what made it so effective and why I think uh, it's important that we put in policies that sort of uh, replicate this is that they put in just these very blanket sort of uh, protections that said, you know, we understand that there's all this leverage, and we understand that there's all these different points and margins on which counties and, and localities can mess with the election process in ways that have sort of disparate impacts. And so what we are going to do is have these sort of very sort of proactive protections which say, you know, you really have to show us that this isn't going to be discriminatory before you actually do it. And I think that's exactly the type of uh, measures that if we want to maintain what happened with the Voting Rights Act, if we want to maintain these gains and this convergence of uh, voting turnout rates that we've seen over the past uh, 50 years between whites and blacks specifically, but also Hispanic uh, voting has also gone up. Thank you so much, Desmond. I'm wondering if we can pivot to your research on civic responses to police violence. Uh, your research looks at the connection between increases in registrations and voting to exposure to police violence. So can you talk a bit about your research and its findings and your recommendations? So obviously, you know, in the past year or so with the Black Lives Matter movement after the killing of uh, George Floyd, there's been this renewed activism, this renewed fervor around police accountability, police reform, which really highlights this, the role of police violence in sort of catalyzing some of the social unrest, some of the civil unrest. And if you look back over the past 50 years or so, you actually see that all of sort of the biggest riots that occurred in the United States all were driven by or incited by 
acts of police violence. So you have, obviously, George Floyd, you have Michael Brown previous to that, Rodney King, Martette Fry during the Watts riots in the 1960s. All of these were sort of police beatings or police killings of uh, minority individuals that then catalyzed this large-scale protest movement. That's just something that's really important to highlight is that this is obviously isn't a new issue. But more generally, we don't really know. Obviously, there's sort of like these informal ways in which people are protesting, in which, again, there's these widespread protests, there's riots, etc. But we don't know the extent to which these things might drive engagement with sort of more formal electoral systems. So do these police killings actually cause people to turn out more, to register to vote more, to change their policy preferences, etc.? Uh, and that was something that was really hotly debated leading up to the 2020 election. Even within the Democratic Party, there is this concern about, you know, are we embracing the Black Lives Matter movement too much, too little, etc.? Like, what are the political ramifications of that? And I think, obviously, some of those issues are a bit beside the point to the extent that, obviously, a lot of this is just an outspring of, of something that seems like it's a, it's a pretty big issue, right? Like this is sort of a symptom of a, of a larger issue, which is police violence and the role of that in minority communities, which again has been documented, at least anecdotally, for some period of time. And so what I do in this paper, uh, along with my co-author, John Teebs, is to look at, you know, we have really detailed information on where police killing is occur in Los Angeles County. We also have very detailed information on where people live in Los Angeles County, as well as voting in different areas. And so... Zooming in just on sort of the neighborhoods around where police killing occurs, we can see whether there is sort of increases or decreases in registrations or votes after these events occur. And what you find is that there's actually an increase in registration. There's also an increase in votes, something like 5% increase in both of these things in the election after police killing occurs. And perhaps not surprisingly, all of this is being driven by black and Hispanic voters. It's all being driven by specifically within that group, younger individuals, people who are first-time registrants, who are now being activated by these police killings to, to try to enact some type of reforms. Um, and they're also changing their policy preferences. And so we can look at referenda voting during this time period. We can say, okay, after a police killing, does that cause you to be more or less likely to vote in favor of propositions that propose reforming the criminal justice system, that propose sort of reducing uh, penalties for low-level offenses, etc. And what you see is that, again, there's this sort of very stark change in, in people's likelihood of, of voting, and specifically that they're much more likely to vote in favor of some of these propositions, weakening criminal justice penalties for, for low-level offenses, which we take to being, again, that these events are occurring, and they're really causing people to question the criminal justice system, or they're really causing people to question law enforcement, become more skeptical of these institutions, to believe that these institutions might be overly harsh, and they're really trying to do something about it. You know, they're turning out to the polls, they're voting in favor of these referenda, which, again, I think speaks to this moment that we're in right now. So, uh, you know, this is really fascinating because your paper also touches on the fact that globally there are similar trends as well, right? Where if you think of societies where you have acts of police violence or contact with the criminal justice system that could mobilize people to get more engaged and so on. Did you find instances where there were differences, like, for example, people who are from affected communities or families versus those who were more broadly living in the area. How did you disaggregate different types of responses within communities or were there differences in responses? Obviously, there's a pretty big racial difference in terms of how voters are responding. And so a police killing a terror, even if you lived in that area, 
what we find is that if you're white or Asian, like we don't really see a change in voting for those groups, but black and Hispanic individuals are much more likely to respond to police killings in terms of civic activism and civic engagement by voting more. It doesn't seem like these effects are driven by, I think you were trying to get to this point, Shishma, of it doesn't seem like these responses are driven by people living in the same household as the person who was killed, by family members of the person who was killed. We can look in the voting record to see if you know, there's increased registrations are coming from people with the same last name as the person who was killed, and we don't really find that that's what's going on. And I think that's consistent with a lot of other work looking at the effects of the criminal justice system on civic engagement, which find that sort of direct contact with the criminal justice system, so being stopped by police, being incarcerated, getting even a low-level felony or misdemeanor on your record, those things disenfranchise people. So those things cause people to vote less, to register, to vote less, etc. And what we're finding here is this sort of more proximal contact. So there's a chilling in your neighborhood. You might know the person, you might not know the person, but you can kind of sense whether or not this was sort of a just or unjust thing. If it's unjust, that's really causing you to, to be activated, to be mobilized in a way where you're then going to engage with the criminal justice system. And so that narrative is, is very much supported by what we can do is we can look to see, okay, how the responses differ based on whether or not the police killed somebody who was armed with a weapon versus someone who was not armed with a weapon. And about 20% of these instances involve somebody who was completely unarmed with a weapon. So they didn't have you know, a knife, a gun, they didn't have anything on them. About 50% of these incidents involve somebody who had a gun specifically. Um, the, remainder, the remaining sort of 30% are individuals that had something in between, like a knife or something like that. And we can see, okay, what's the difference in terms of how people are turning out, whether or not they're turning out, based on whether or not the person who was killed had one of these different types of weapons or no weapon at all. And what you find is that significantly larger effects are coming from police killings of people who are unarmed. So the effects on turnout and registration are like three times larger after a police killing of someone who is unarmed, which I think really, again, speaks to this idea that people aren't responding necessarily just to the fact that somebody is killed. They're not responding to the fact that there's gunfire in their neighborhood, but they're instead responding to this idea that you know, they saw someone who was killed Again, that, that person might not have been in the household, that you can still get a sense of whether or not this is sort of a just thing or not, right? Like if the person was unarmed, it seems much less likely that police use of force, at least sort of from a citizen's perspective, might have been reasonable, might have been, you know, proportionate to the threat posed by that person, etc. Um, and again, I think that speaks a lot to what's going on in the world recently with the Black Lives Matter movement, where these killings specifically of, of minority individuals who are often unarmed lead people to really question the amount of sort of racial discrimination in the criminal justice system, the amount to which we can trust uh, certain institutions, etc. And what we find is that that then catalyzes people to turn out and try to do something about it uh, through these formal election systems. So Desmond, what are some of your research priorities for the coming months? These questions are questions that have existed for a really long time. If you think about police violence, again, you can go back to the Turner Report in the 60s. Even before that, there's concerns about police violence throughout the United States, specifically in minority communities. I think there's a lot more to sort of learn about the effects there, to think about you know, how are people responding, who's being enfranchised, who's being disenfranchised, how can we quantify these things in a way that then helps us make policies around use of force, around aggressive policing, around um, you know, what police should and shouldn't be doing uh, in general. Um, so I think there's a lot more to be seen there. Similarly, these issues of media and representation and, 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 and discrimination 
Um, again, they go back for a really long time, right? Like these stereotypes, these racial stereotypes in media, you can see in the birth of a nation 100 years ago. You can continue to see it in a lot of media today. I think there's a lot more that, that we need to know about those questions. So I think I'll have my hands full of, with both of these topics. So over the last year, Desmond, we've seen significant protests and contestation within academia around issues of racial equity and, and ways in which faculty of color, particularly African-American faculty and staff, are treated by the university. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about what universities, particularly elite universities, need to be doing in this regard. You know, I, I think it's... Uh... I think it's pretty obvious that there's not enough representation and diversity in institutions of, of higher education, especially if you consider the fact that, you know, these institutions are generally liberal, you know, and so it does seem a little strange to be generous in some sense that there's not more faculty of color um, at a lot of higher ed institutions, including at the Kennedy School and other elite institutions. In terms of what we can be doing, you know, I think from my own personal experience, again, I'm an economist, I think that there are these sort of structures that we abide by that very much sort of dissuade people who aren't of a similar mindset, aren't of a similar background from sort of even thinking about, for example, becoming an economist, et cetera, right? Like in Eton, we have all these very formal theories about how we think about discrimination, which is this very small, very individual level, very specific definition that I think fails to encompass a lot of what, like, what discrimination is in the world uh, and how sort of a lay person would even think about discrimination. Um, and I think that those types of rigid mindsets, rigid structures, rigid models can then make it seem like, you know, if you're coming in with a different perspective and overwhelmingly, you know, you would think that this is going to be more likely to be the case if you're coming from sort of a disadvantaged background, a background where you're coming from a family of color, where you just view the world differently, you have a different sort of lived experience with these issues, that these things can be really off-putting, that they can be really sort of dissuading of sort of joining these disciplines, etc. And so I think we obviously have sort of like this messaging work ahead of us in terms of saying, you know, economics is a really broad field, political uh, science is a really broad field, sociology is a really broad field, where these issues where you're talking about racism in a way that doesn't necessarily fit some of these economic molds, that's still, there's still a place for that in the field. There's still a place for that in journals, in academic research. So I think there's that aspect of it. You know, I think that's sort of widening the pipeline. Obviously, I think there's sort of work to be done with regards to actual recruitment, how we recruit individuals, etc. Desmond, thank you so much for your time and your ideas. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Shisha. This podcast is produced at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Learn more about our work at carrcenter.hks.harvard.edu and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like what you hear, you can tune into more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.